Jim mentioned that uh, four of the elders are not here this morning, and at the elders meeting on Tuesday, they started talking about, oh, I won't be here, I won't be here, and I was going, looking around, I said, uh, so, so exactly who won't be here, you know, so they told me, and I said, good, I wanted to know, because those that aren't here, I can talk about them in my sermon. And they laughed, and, you know, Bruce kind of sat there, and he started to say something. And I said, well, Bruce is going to say something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in those measured words that Bruce speaks in, he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, that just makes us want to listen to the message even more. <laughs> and I said, good, that's good. So... Uh, Every year, I pray and ask the Lord at the beginning or towards the end of the year for a word for the year. And I did that, and the Lord gave me something, and I hadn't had opportunity. There's been a lot going on. We were gone in January, went to visit my son, did some missions networking in California. We were traveling, and, you know, February missions conference and so on. I hadn't had an opportunity, and then Bill asked me, actually, uh, to preach, so it was quite appropriate because I had this word on my heart. And the word I received for this year is perseverance. Perseverance. Okay, that's probably just enough right there. <laughs> Everybody's going, you know, right? So, uh, definition of perseverance uh, steady persistence. This is really appropriate. Steady persistence in a course of action, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, and discouragement. The synonyms are persistence, tenacity, determination, staying power, steadfastness. Steadfastness. And we're talking about our Christian walk, and we're going to move into this. We're talking about spiritually. In Daniel 7 verse 25, in the King James, in regard to the enemy, it says this, He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And you read that and you think, yeah, I know what it's talking about. Wear out the saints of the Most High. In the, King, in the New King James, it says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. New International says he will oppress his holy people. Satan attempts to wear out the saints through oppression and persecution. This persecution, and I, I've been dealing with this lately, ministering to a young man who's special forces, things are going on in his family, and I'm talking to him about spiritual warfare and, and the weapons that we have, the weapons of the enemy. This persecution most of the time comes in the form of mental harassment. Mental harassment, persecution. It says he's the accuser and the deceiver. So he accuses. There's a lot of condemnation, a lot of oppression that comes as the enemy berates us. It's a battle uh, for our minds. He wears us out. He opposes us constantly. Uh, here's a quote. John Henry Jowett a British Protestant preacher in the 1800s said this, 
Evil never surrenders its grasp without a tremendous fight. We never arrive at any spiritual inheritance through the enjoyment of a picnic, but always through the fierce conflicts of the battlefield. Satan is not put to flight by our courteous request. He completely blocks our way. Our progress must be recorded in blood and tears. When we are born again, it is not into a soft and protected nursery, but into the open countryside where we must actually draw strength from the distresses of the storm. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist and founder of Moody Bible Institute, said it this way. When I was converted, I made this mistake. I thought the battle was already mine, the victory already won, the crown already in my grasp. But I found out after serving Christ for a few months that conversion was like enlisting in the army, that there was a battle on hand, and that if I was to get a crown, I had to work for it and fight for it. It is consistent. It is consistent. We can never uh, let down. It is a constant struggle and a constant battle. Galatians 6, 9. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You're going to hear this theme. Not give up. Not give up. We must continue to press on and press in to God. Newton's first law of motion states that a body at rest will remain at rest unless acted upon by an external force. This is uh, also called the uh, law of inertia. It also says that the inertia of a body in motion will not maintain consistent velocity unless it is acted upon by an external force. It's the same way. In nature, there's friction. There's other elements. But in the spiritual life, there's this constant resistance. We must continually apply force and pressure to move forward forward and fulfill the will of God in our lives. It's consistent. There's a consistent resistance from the flesh and the devil. It is a test of endurance. Uh, years ago, I was really uh, a disciple of Bob Mumford, you know, reading, listening to his tapes and saying, I got to meet him one time, fine guy. But anyway, he was part of the Fort Lauderdale floor. They had a book called New Wine Magazine. Many of us know, know of them. But he said one time, he said, the Christian race is a mile run, not a hundred-yard dash. You've got to set down into a pace. You can't just run out and burn out. You need to set a pace and realize this is a mile run. The object of this race is not to come in first. It's not a competition, but to finish the race, to finish the race. You win by finishing. One of the greatest compliments I ever received was from a fellow named Jason Peoples. Jason Peoples and uh, John English were a couple of the architects of uh, our house church movement and the MCS uh, uh, course, which we still have, Maturity in Christ series. That Maturity in Christ series actually came out of a master's thesis that Jason Peoples did, and he did it by researching three different discipleship groups and developed that, and then they worked it into the MCS series. And the three groups were Insight Ministries and Carson House, some of you remember this, and Jesus Inn. So he met with me in my office, and we talked. 
and he asked me what principles, what we were doing. You know, we had a program. Monday night we did this, Tuesday night, and all these different things, and we went through that. And when we were completed, and I, I didn't know Jason that well. I really respected him. He was a fine, intelligent guy. But he said this. He said, you know, Gordon, he said, you are a plotter. You're not a racehorse. There's a lot of flashy people out there, but you are a plotter. He said, when others have burned out, you will still be there. So, what is that, 40, 43 years, you know, just plodding along. Uh, one time the Lord actually spoke to me something similar in regard to my ministry. When we first started the ministry, you know, you know Christian community and drug rehabilitation and a, and a, and a you know, 27-year-old prophet that was speaking uh, voluminous words and doing all kinds of things. And I'll tell you what, I had adversaries. I know Jim knows about that. He was talking to me one time. And he said, I can't believe how many adversaries you had in those days. Jim said himself at that time. He was pastor of Bel Air Christian Church to be my friend, to befriend me. But I remember that, and I was praying about this. I, and some of them were like, you know, very well-known men in the city, older men, some of them younger, you know, resisting, speaking against me, all kinds of stuff. And the Lord said this to me. I remember this clearly. He said that if I would be faithful and I would focus on God and what he had called me to do, that I would not give up and keep moving, that I would outrun, I would outlast my adversaries. And I saw it time and again. You know, I, and he said it was almost like where the Bible says you will look at the Adler's hole and not see a snake you know, or something. And be, I'd be you know, just focusing and I'd look around and they were gone. You know? And Susie and I were thinking, recounting this a little bit as I went through this message and some of the strongest ones that opposed me are, have fallen away, which is very strange, very strange. And um, that was a very encouraging word at that time. The qualities needed are concerted effort, discipline. I, I like this one. This one's a hard one for me because I'm very scattered. Focus. Focus and faithfulness. So in what areas do we need to continue to persevere spiritually? Number one, prayer. And I know that uh, Bill touched this, and he was very specific in the area of the prayer challenge, and I shared with him what I was going to share. He felt that was really good because I'd like to expand a little bit on it. But as we think about perseverance in prayer, we immediately think about the widow. So let's look at that real quick. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke 18, 1 through 8. <clears throat> and, and what's interesting about this parable, the, the real essence, there's a story, but the real essence of the parable is at the beginning and at the end. And, and we'll review those statements. At the beginning, he says this. He spoke a parable to them. Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Okay, that's the, that's the issue of this parable. And by the way, I mean, if you look at this, I, and I'm not trying to read something into this that's not in here, but, you know, a lot of times, and, and we need to understand this, that when these scriptures are spoken, he's talking about men, you know, mankind. You know, I mean, he could have said mankind always. This isn't a, a, a gender issue. You know, the Word of God says God created man, male and female, he created now, there's times that are specific. Men do this, women do this. But in such as this, 
He's talking about prayer, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about us. We always ought to pray and not lose heart. Then he uses a woman as an example. There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. There was a widow in that city. She came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. He would not for a while. Afterward, he said to himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Though it seems like it's taking a long time. Okay? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So... Men always ought to pray and not lose heart, story. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What does this mean? True faith is continuing in prayer, believing, having not yet received. That's true faith. That's true faith. Not getting things instantly or whatever, you know, all these formulas and all these things. This is true faith. What this is actually saying is, that you are in prayer, not, getting, not yet having received, seeking God in prayer, not yet having received, and in the midst of that, the Lord comes back. And he sees that, he says, that is true faith. And when he comes, everything's consummated. Everything's consummated. But that's what that is expressing. He's saying persistent prayer, persevering prayer, is true faith, is true faith. Here's an excerpt from a six-page letter that Martin Luther wrote to his barber when asked, Dr. Luther, how do you pray? Cutting his hair, Dr. Luther, how do you pray? He didn't answer. He said, let me think about that. Wrote a six-page letter. It was published in 1535. Here's a small portion. It is a good thing to let prayer be the first business in the morning and the last in the evening. Guard yourself against false and deceitful thoughts that keep whispering. And where do you think those thoughts come from? Wait a while. In an hour or so, you, you will pray. First, you have to go do this and do that, and you get distracted. And thinking such thoughts, we get away from prayer to other things that will hold us and involve us until the prayer of the day comes to naught. We need to be disciplined and committed to times of prayer. Disciplined and committed to times of prayer. Set times of prayer. Find out, you know, everybody has an individual schedule, so on and so forth. But you can look at that and set times for prayer. I, I was going to get to this when I get to the Word, but the Lord has really impressed upon me just the need to be even more abiding in the Word of God, that we just need more and more of the Word of God. So I've been trying to think of ways that can happen. So I've set a standard for myself that when we have a meal in our home, that I will read a scripture. I'm reading through the Gospels, so it's like a section. You know, you don't read a whole chapter. It's like Jesus did this and this, and then he went away. And then he came back. and he. So I'm reading this, and we talk about it a little bit, but just, just to bring every meal, and it's just, I think it's starting to really have an effect. I've noticed an effect, especially in certain of our children, just from that simple reading of scripture. Set times. Look for opportunities and establish those times. When we think about persevering prayer, we cannot help but think about George Mueller. 
1800s, an Austrian Christian evangelist, director of Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life purely through prayer and faith. He committed himself to not share with anyone, but just to pray and seek God, and God provided. He once wrote, and he kept a journal, and he would write the prayer, and then he would write how it was answered and the date it was answered, and he kept a journal. And there was only one, this is an example at the end, as, as, he, as he approached his last days, that was not answered. And it says this, this is uh, Mueller speaking, the great point, <laughs> you need to hear this, the great point is never give up until the answer comes. Should I repeat that? Never give up until the answer comes. I have been praying for 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. He's not saved yet, but he will be. How can it be otherwise? I am praying. The day came when Mueller's friend received Christ. It did not come until Mueller's casket was lowered into the ground. There, near the open grave, this friend gave his heart to God. Prayers of perseverance had won the battle. So the journal was complete. Every prayer Mueller had prayed had been answered. Mueller's success may be summarized in four powerful words. You might want to write this down. <laughs> four powerful words. He did not quit. He did not quit. He did not quit. I've shared with you my testimony probably before about how I came to the Lord, but very quickly, um, I, I was in the, in the military. I was in the Army in Korea. I got involved in existential philosophy and, and drugs. And when I came back, I became a drug dealer, became a hippie, and I moved out to Berkeley, California, and I dealt drugs in Berkeley, California, and then I came back, and then I went to Colorado. I was ensconced in the mountains of uh, Colorado, and uh, my mother and my grandmother got together and said, you know, let's just covet together to pray for Gordon every day, every day. And I asked my grandmother later, I said, what did you do? She said, she was into visualization in a good way. She said, I took your picture, set it on a table, and looked at your picture and prayed. You know, and some of you may remember she attended the church here for a time, but they prayed, and I remember one time in particular. This is kind of funny, you know. I don't know, spooky. You know, I'm doing LSD and I'm all spaced. I'm doing all this stuff, and all I kept getting was my mother, my mother, my mother. She was praying for me, you know. And I called her one time and I said, you know, I hadn't talked to her because you know when you're doing dope, I mean, three months goes, you know, goes by. You don't know what happened, you know. And so I called her, I called her and I said, okay, what do you want? Well, I was just wondering how you were doing. Yeah. So uh, they prayed. Three years, three years every day. I, I talked to my mother about this. Three years, every day they prayed. And God intervened in a miraculous way, and I was actually saved. And I have my booklet because it would take too long to... to um, tell that story, but through divine intervention and an angelic visitation in a hotel room, I was saved. Not in a church. When I was saved, I didn't know the gospel. I didn't know what repentance was. I didn't know anything about it. But I was radically saved, and I repented. And it was, it was powerful. So persevere in prayer. 
Um, I've been reading a book <coughs> lately, and many of you, I don't know, if, uh, some of you may have gone to, uh, to the movie, um, Lone Survivor. Mark, you probably saw that movie. Is that good? Did you see that movie? It was good. Lone Survivor. It's about the Navy SEAL who uh, it was a SEAL team in the mountains of Afghanistan, and they were uh, ambushed. They were ambushed. The team was ambushed. It was a, a radical uh, thing that happened. And they were ambushed. And through the process of this ambush, and they were trying to each time retreat to a better position, each man was killed during that process. And finally, this man, Marcus Literal, fell back uh, into a place where they didn't see him or something. And by the time they came around, he crawled off. And I mean, it's just an incredible story of endurance and perseverance. And throughout that process, in the book, in the movie, you don't see this. They took this, they sanitized the movie, but in the book, he's constantly talking to God, thanking God, praying, um, identifying, you know, this must be God doing this because otherwise I wouldn't, you know, I found this, I found that. But the other thing was that uh, back in his home, which is in East Texas, his, his family owns a ranch. He has a twin brother. His name's Marcus. His twin brother's name is Morgan. His brother Morgan is also a Navy SEAL. And uh, people are starting to gather at this ranch to comfort the, the, the family. And, and it's just people keep coming, and people keep coming. And prayer meetings start, and intercession, and prayer, and all this stuff going. Chaplain shows up, this Navy SEAL chaplain who's filled with the Spirit. And he starts rallying them in prayer, and they're praying. And all days go by, and they're continuing in prayer. And... Uh, he said every, every day at, five, at 6 o'clock, the phone would ring, and they'd give an update. Nothing. We know, you know, MIA. He's not, we don't know if he's dead. We don't, know, we don't know anything about the team. We can't get anybody in there. We don't know. And it goes on like that. And uh, they're continuing in prayer. And it gets to be 300 people out on this ranch. And they, don't, they aren't going anywhere. They start camping out. They're sleeping here. They're sleeping there. Uh, said as the numbers grew, all of a sudden food started appearing. Some, some barbecue place found out about it and sent a truckload of food and this and that. And God It was just the most miraculous. You've got to read the story. If you get the book, start at chapter 6. It's, it's just amazing. But let me just read, let me read some of this, okay? Out there in the dry summer pastures, surrounded by thousands of head of cattle, the words of the United States Navy hymn, which is actually a prayer. They got 300 people together, and they sang this prayer periodically, okay? It echoed into the night. There were no neighbors to wake up. Everyone for miles was in our front yard. Mom says everyone was out there that night. Again, nearly 300 people, the policemen and judges and sheriffs and all the others joined mom and dad. The Iron Men from Spec Warcom, all these Navy SEALs and all these you know, Special Forces guys coming in, just standing there, singing at the top of their lungs, Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for SEALs in air on land and sea. And it talks, it's a prayer of protection. Just that in the corporate. But there was groups praying constantly, all this going on. In the meantime, you know, he's going through this whole process of almost getting killed and then getting shot and then hiding and killing somebody, finding somebody. And what finally happened was that a farmer found him, a Pashtu farmer in Afghanistan, found him and adopted him into his family and took him into his house. 
And when that occurs, there's a, a principle called loke, which is a Pashtu code of honor that once someone is in your home, you will protect him with your life, the whole village. And the whole village, everybody's armed. The whole village has AK-47s. They don't like Taliban. The head elder is a wise and old man, about 80. Found out later he is over about five or six villages. The Taliban are scared to death of him. If they killed him, they would totally alienate that whole area. And the Taliban have to uh, be friends with these people. So they couldn't. They tried to come in. They said no, and they couldn't because of this. It was just an amazing. You got to read the story. But finally, they get some uh, troops in there, and they and they they hike in like you know 10 miles. And they find them in the midst of this, and the Taliban have actually surrounded the village, and somehow they get in and through. So now this group is with him inside with the Taliban. I'm not going to tell you the rest of the story. You've got to read the story. It's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. And one of the funniest things about Marcus is, you know, he's a Navy SEAL, and the rescuers are Army and Special Forces. And he said, oh, man. He said, I was just hoping some SEALs will, would save me. He said, now I've got to put up with all this crap about how you guys had to come in and and save me, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so finally they get him, they get him, um, you know, um, stabilized because, I mean, he's, he's got shrapnel, he's got all kinds of wounds. And, um, and so they, they, they finally call in that they found him and he's secure. Okay? So the phone rings out at the ranch at 5 o'clock, an hour early. Well, they know something's up because they only call at 6. So Chief Guthrow one of the military guys, walked my mom to the phone and informed her that whatever it was, she had to face it. A voice came down the line and demanded, Chief, is the family assembled? Yes, sir. Mr. and Mrs. Literal? Yes, whispered mom. Well, I'll tell you, after I read this thing, I just I have a hard time reading this. Said, we got him, ma'am. We got Marcus. And he's stable. Mom started to collapse right there on the floor. Scotty moved swiftly and saved her from hitting it. Lieutenant J.J. Jones bolted for the door, stood at the, stood at the porch, called for quiet, and they yelled, they got him. Marcus has been rescued. They tell me the roar which erupted over those lonely pastors way down in the, in, down in the back country of East Texas could have been heard in Houston, 55 miles away. Morgan says it wasn't just your average roar. It was spontaneous, deafening. Everyone together, top of their lungs, a pure outpouring of relief and joy for mom and dad and my family. It signaled the conclusion of a five-day vigil to which a zillion prayers had been offered to God by God-fearing folk. They understood in that split second after the announcement that those prayers had been asked and answered. For them, it was a confirmation of faith, of the unbreakable hope and belief of a Navy SEAL chaplain, Trayvon, and all the others. Isn't that amazing? That's in the book. Wasn't in the movie, but that's in the book. And you know, if it hadn't been five days, it would have been six. They weren't going to quit until they got an answer one way or the other. It's the most amazing, amazing story. Again, you can start at chapter six, because that's one through six is Navy SEAL training. If you want to know about that, you can talk to Spencer. But, uh, but you might want to read that too. But the fun starts in chapter 6. So what have we learned? From the widow, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. 
because when the Son of Man comes, he needs to find faith on the earth. From Luther, we need to set consistent times of prayer and be faithful to that. From George Mueller and, and this testimony with the lone survivor, never give up until the answer comes. Never give up until the answer comes. He did not quit. We need to persevere in prayer. Number two, we need to persevere in the ministry of the Word of God. We get a lot of resistance about this also, same kind of thing. We need to persevere in the ministry of the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, To remember that. Sorry. Second Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is King James. In the New King James, it says, be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Living Bible says this, and I really liked it. Work hard so God can say to you, well done. Be a good workman, one who does not need to be ashamed when God examines your work. Know what his word says and means. I like that, real practical. We need to be diligent to persevere in the reading and studying of God's word. Jim Grinnell once gave a message here on the word of God, and he specifically said, and this is true, that when you get out of the habit of reading the Word of God, you lose your appetite for it. You lose your appetite. The other truth is the converse, that when you are in the Word of God, the more you're in the Word of God, the more you want to be in the Word of God. You get an appetite for it. You just can't, can't get enough. You get an appetite for it. The more you read the Word of God, the more you have an appetite we need to abide, and I've, I've taught on this, and this is a little bit of a review, but we need to abide in the living word of God. When we abide in the word of God, we are abiding in God's presence. John 15, 9 through 10. John 15, 9 through 10. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So it says, keep his commandments to abide in his love. Truly the love of God is the presence of God. If you're abiding in his love, you're abiding in his presence. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in his presence. What does it mean to keep or to abide in his presence? It means to put into practice what you hear and what you read in the word of God. So we need to persevere not only in the study of the Word of God, but we need to persevere in obedience, allowing the ministry of the Word of God to change us, to change us. And if you abide in the Word of God, it will do that. It, it just has that innate ability. It just it does that. It isn't like an effort on your part as such. I mean, obedience takes effort. But there's an empowerment that comes through the ministry of the Word of God. The ministry of the Word of God also cleanses us from sin. 1 John 1 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what it says. If you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. What is the light? Psalm 119.105, your, your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 2 Peter 1.19-20, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as to a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Psalm 119.130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The word of God is the light that we're to walk in. As we walk and abide in the word of God, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. That's what it says. The ministry of the word of God causes us to abide in God's love, his presence. It also changes us and cleanses us from all sin. If that's not enough of a motivation to get into the word of God, I, I don't know what possibly could be. That is so powerful. Is it any wonder the devil resists and fights against us being faithful to read, to study, and apply the word of God to our lives. He will resist us. We need to press in and persevere in the ministry of God's word. I would also add, reading spiritual books, biographies, these things that edify the spirit. I always try to keep a spiritual biography on hand, reading about a great man or woman of God. I, I read a lot of uh, the mystics, you know, Madame Goyan. I read, uh, I'm reading again, Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. I've probably read it three or four times. I just finished Martin Luther's Table Talks, uh, Fenlon's Spiritual Letters. These are powerful, powerful books. They will edify and encourage you. Powerful books. Number three, we need to persevere in the call of God upon our lives to be faithful, and to continue to do what God has called us to do. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Everyone is called to a different vocation. Everyone here has a different sphere of influence. By the way, that's why the Lord puts you in that vocation. Uh, number one, it fits somehow with your giftings and skills. Number two, in Ecclesiastes, it says that it's a gift of God that a man should work with his hands, a man or woman work with their hands, and enjoy their work. You know, We get fulfillment, and that's part of, the, part of the gift of God. But the direct purpose and reason spiritually is your, it's your sphere of influence, that you are a light. In that place, in that place. Mark 16, 15 through 18, because basically the work we're called to is encapsulated in the Great Commission. I'll move swiftly because probably we, we you know, this church, you should have it memorized, the Great, Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He does not believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. It talks about the power of of God. Speak with new tongues. Take up serpents. Drink any deadly thing. Talks about protection. By no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And I like what Chuck Ferris used to say. Chuck used to say, what this is saying is go into every man's world. 
Go into all the world, go into every man's world. To do that, we have to be diverse. With Christians involved in every form of employment, every form of employment, all kinds of different businesses and education, all these different things, God seeds us into these places to have an influence and to be a light. It's the only way the gospel is going to get it into every man's world. And this word preach, go into all the world and preach the gospel, is actually in the Greek means to proclaim publicly, just to speak out publicly. One person, two people, in a lunchroom, whatever. A larger group, so be it that God would give you that, that opportunity. But it just means to proclaim publicly. It doesn't mean you have to be a preacher. That's not what it means. I, I, I shared this before. You know, Paul had this strange conception that every Christian was a preacher because he understood this dynamic. He understood this dynamic. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the second half uh, of the commission. And as we look at this and look at these aspects, these are the things that we are supposed to be doing within our sphere of influence with those that we associate with. Okay? It isn't like a program or, you know, a specific thing. It just, just naturally, okay? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and we say, well, you know, I'm not called to be a, a discipler. You know, you think of Chuck Farrer, or you, you think of Jim meeting with leadership uh, over lunch or different. I, I don't, I'm not called to do that. You know, I'm not a discipler, you know. But, but basically, the scripture defines discipling. Discipling is teaching others to observe the things that God has commanded you. Can anybody do that? Anybody can do that. Has, wait, God's taught you some things, hasn't he? And you can share those with others. That's, that's what it says discipling is. You know, I, I was thinking about, my, I, th I might have shared this, but, you know, we have seven kids. And uh, we, we practiced on Heather. Made all the mistakes on Heather. She turned out pretty good. but we. And, and, then, and then another one was born. And then by number three, okay, we didn't have a lot to do. Heather was discipling them, you know? They'd say something, they'd go, oh, that's not the way you say it. You say it like this. Oh, you know. You know, and I'd come by and find out, you know. I... Forgive me, Heather. How many of the boys did you lay hands on and pray for and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit? A couple, at least a couple, you know? And I'm over there and I go, you know, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Oh, Heather already took care of that. Okay, well, that's what it says, right? We're all disciplers. We're all preachers. Are we okay? No. We're all preachers. Keep going like this. We're all preachers and we're all disciplers in your sphere of influence, in your sphere of influence. So on the job or at school, whatever vocation you have, as opportunity arises, and we look for opportunities. Sometimes we're able to create them without getting fired. <laughs> you know, we're able to create them, okay? We are to share the gospel publicly. 
And we're also supposed to share with them what God has taught us and what he's done in our lives. And we're to persevere in this. Okay? Now, having said that, we realize that everyone has a different personality and different giftings, so we would approach this differently. It's customized. Some of us are very are extroverted. Some of us are introverted. That's okay. It works, you know. Introverted peop- extroverted people might turn some people off that introverted people can communicate with. On the other hand, you know, it, it, it just all, it's, God made it that way. It's okay. You're not all the same. You're not supposed to all be like someone else, right? Okay? We need to identify our strengths and weaknesses. Part of the process of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit helping us to identify our strengths and our weaknesses. That's okay. Because then we can compensate, we can work with that. That's okay. And we all have them. And we're all going to keep having them. Some of me adjusts, but some of me leave for a purpose. Now Chuck Ferris said this. I really like it. Find out what you do well and do more of it. That's what persevere is. Find out what you do well and do more of it. He also used to uh, kind of uh, twist around Paul's thing. He said, Paul said, this one thing I do, not these many things I dabble in. <laughs> you know, The idea is focus. You know, We can't do everything. We need to focus. Find out and focus. And the Lord's been speaking to me more and more about that. Focus, focus. I guess as you get older, you know, it just gets to the point where you realize, time-wise, you better start focusing. Focus, focus, focus. Be faithful with the giftings God has given you and persevere in the call of God on your life within your sphere of influence. I, 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 was, in, uh, I was on my way to Iraq to um, a project that Shelter for Life was doing. And my son Josh had just been transferred to Jordan and he was training special forces. He was training Afghan commandos at the Royal Jordanian Commando School. Okay, I don't know if you guys have read in the news about the King of King Abdullah of Jordan, but he's one bad dude. This guy is one bad dude. He's built like a bear, and he went through uh, American Ranger training and all this stuff, and he got so pumped up, he went back and he started the Royal Jordanian Commando School. And after this pilot was burned, they had a picture of him. He put on his uniform, got in a plane, went over there and started shooting up people. The king! It's real cool. If you want to see it, I got it on my iPad, picture of the king. But uh, so he's got this commando school. I asked Josh, I said, did you get to meet the king? He said, well, actually, he came through and reviewed it. I shook his hand. I didn't, you know. But uh, he's, he's t- training there. And so he's in Amman, Jordan. And uh, they're in this uh, apartment. And they're wearing civvies with little things. And they drive out in black SUVs, look like CIA, go to work, put their uniforms on, come back. They're in this uh, very wealthy apartment, and I'm on my way to Iraq, so I stop in Amman, Jordan. I spent about four days with Josh and his special forces unit. And uh, so Josh said, you, you can't stay in my apartment because all the comm equipment's in there and you don't have clearance, but, you, you know, I talked to Rob, our warrant officer, and he's a black guy, real buff guy, and he said, uh, and he said you can stay in his apartment and it's a good thing you're here because Rob drives us crazy. He is such a radical Christian. He's just asking questions all the time. So you get to answer his questions. 
So, I mean, the first thing, when he found out as a pastor, oh, hey, listen, I need to ask you, what does this mean? What is it? Oh, it was, it was wild, you know. Rob was wild. But he was so on fire. And he's a warrant officer, and he's got about, uh, well, he just actually was up for retirement and re-enlisted for another six years. And I, I encouraged him to do that, actually. But he, he was there, and he said, brother, he said, I don't know, I just feel, I feel like, you know, I just need to, need to quit the military and become a pastor. And I said, good grief, we got all kinds of pastors. I don't know how many warrant officers, special forces, Christians on fire like this we got. He said, you can reach so many more people that will never get near church. Don't you leave. You need to stay right here, you know. And so he, he, he let go of that. But he was ready to, if I hadn't showed up, I don't know, he would have quit and become a pastor and been a, another oh, pastor, started another church, you know. We need, we need another church, right? We need another church in Tulsa. I don't, I don't know. I remember back when Jim said, I think we had about 35,000 people in Tulsa. I remember this, 35,000 people. And he did a, uh, a mail-out, okay, 35,000 people at that. He did a mail-out, and there was 1,000 churches. That's one church for every 350 people. A thousand churches. And that was back, you know, before, you know, Willie George with how many thousand, you know, and Grace with that. That was before those churches. You know, we need another church. What we need is more special forces warrant officers in the military. So he stayed in. So you can understand the reality of this. You can understand the reality of this. Be faithful where God has put you. It's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be bold. The Lord is with you. Be bold. Uh, I wanted to share with you this verse. This is a word of encouragement for us out in the field of labors. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 3. You might want to just put the reference down. Look at it later. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 8. 8 through 11. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed by their looks. They are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. Take this personally. Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears and go. Get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. It's not your business. Yours is to speak. That's what it says. Take that personally. That's why you need to reference it. Ezekiel 3, 8 through 11. Read that with your name in it. Take that personally. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit like men, which means act. Act like men and be strong. Be strong. Don't be intimidated. What are they going to do? Reject you? Uh-oh. I was going to tell Jim about this. I just wrote an article on Facebook. It was incredible. It basically said, real men do not get offended it was really cool. I mean, just so cool. It said, you know, about how, how, you know, to get offended, you need to be wimpy. What, you can't take a little, you can't take it. I remember Jim was talking about this, that he's gotten to the place where, man, nothing offends him. For me, I get offended for about a minute, 
And then the Lord throws this verse in my head that says, a wise man will not receive an offense, something like that. You know, I just say, okay, just let it go. Let it go. They're going to reject you. They're going to talk about you behind your back. Stand fast, be strong, be faithful, and persevere in the call God has put upon your life. So, we need to persevere in prayer. We need to persevere in the ministry of God's word. We need to persevere in the call that God has placed upon us. More of it. The times are being shortened. You're not getting any younger. Press in. More of it. Uh, we used to have a saying at the Jesus Inn, keep on keeping on. No matter what the cost, hear me, no matter what the cost, no matter how intense the warfare, we need to be diligent, we need to be persistent, and we need to be faithful. You know, when I had this heart attack uh, in June of two years ago, that was, that was really, I'll be honest with you, that was overwhelming. I told my wife, I said, all I could say was, this was not part of a plan. This was not. This was a bullet I thought I would dodge. You know, my grandfather died at 56 of a heart attack. My dad had a heart attack at 56 and survived and died at 65. But I take after my mother's side of the family. I don't have any blood pressure problems. I don't have heart problems. I got great blood pressure. In fact, the doctor said, you are totally healthy. He said, you're not overweight. You don't smoke. You know, you drink. He said, you don't you know, he said, your, your blood pressure is tremendous. He said, your cholesterol, it, it's, it's high, but not terrible. I've seen people much worse. He said, but you have a genetic propensity for plaque to build up in your arteries. He said, you would have had to deal with this sooner or later. But it happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 13 minutes from a hospital, not at 40,000 feet, or in Russia, where I would have died. I would have died. And it was June. June, May and June is the only time I'm not doing anything. May and June. So I get a stint. 100% blockage. They give me a stint. They find another area. Said we need to reschedule another one July 15th, a month later, because they didn't want to aggravate the heart. The heart was inflamed. So another stint, July 15th. Shortly after that, I left for three weeks of ministry in New Hampshire. I was still having some symptoms. I came back, I did a stress test, they found another area. Put in two more stints in September. In October, I left for Russia and Ukraine. I realized sitting there as I thought about this, I didn't miss anything. I didn't miss any ministry. I didn't miss any ministry. But you know, for about a year, I was still having pressure, some pain, and you know, and the devil was just on me, trying to, to, to disable me, trying to disable me. Uh, it was incredible. And, and finally, I got to the place where I said, Lord, as long as I have breath and strength, I will be obedient, I will go, and I will teach, and I will preach. And I pressed in with all that and went back to Russia, back to Ukraine, just two years later. And, you know, almost a year to the day, it was like, Plip, and the symptoms went away. Like a switch flipped, and the symptoms went away. And you know, I asked the Lord, I said, why should I share that? It sounds like I'm building myself up. Okay, if my persistence and my I will not quit will be, can be an example to you, 
please let it be so. Because I am a very weak vessel. And if you know my history, you know, I'm an insecure person. I'm a very weak vessel. If I can do it, you can do it. Okay? That's the example. Don't stop. Don't quit. Uh, from sophomore through my senior year in high school, I was a wrestler. I was on the wrestling team. And we had a fantastic coach. His name was Matucci. And he was uh, a college state champion. And, I mean, he was a little Italian guy, and he was just ornery, you know. And he had this thing about us getting on our back. Because, see, in wrestling, you can only be pinned and lose by being pinned if you're on your back. So his thing was, you're never on your back. Never. I mean, he said, okay, take a break. You're on your back. Push-ups. You know, you had to prop yourself up, lay on your stomach. You never could be on your back. Never. And in a wrestling match, you had this ingrained in you. You know, the guy started to roll you over. No, I'm not going to be on my back. I'm not going to, you know. It's, it's just constant. It was a constant thing. It was like an obsession. You know, I'm not going to be on my back. That's a good thing. You know, I'm not going to be on my back. He said, if you lose by points, that's honorable. But don't get pinned. <laughs> don't get pinned. And, you know, that stuck with me. <laughs> you know? Never stay on your back. Get up. Get up. You get knocked down, you get up. You get knocked down, you get up. Don't stay on your back. Let me finish with a quote. And actually, this speaks a little to that. I just, I just read this the other day. Actually, after the teaching was done. It's by Thomas Akempis, a 14th century German Catholic mystic who wrote Imitation of Christ. Listen carefully. Strive thou like a good soldier. If sometimes thou fail through weakness, put on thy strength more bravely than before. Thine old enemy altogether striveth to hinder thy pursuit after good, to deter thee from every godly exercise, to wit, the profitable recollection of sin, the keeping of thine own heart, the steadfast purpose to grow in virtue, he suggesteth to thee many evil thoughts that he may work in thee weariness and terror and so draw thee away from prayer and holy reading. Believe him not, nor heed him. Though many a time he hath laid for thee the snares of deceit, account it to be from him when he suggesteth evil and unclean thoughts. Don't take that upon yourself. Oh, that's just me. It says here, account it to be from him when he suggests evil and unclean thoughts. And I love this. This guy was charismatic. He said, say unto him, depart, unclean spirit. Put on shame, miserable one. Horribly unclean art thou who bringest such things to mine ears. Depart from me, detestable deceiver. Thou shalt have no part in me. But Jesus shall be with me as a strong warrior. And thou shalt stand confounded. Rather, I would die and bear all suffering than consent unto thee. Hold thy peace, be dumb. I will not hear thee more. Though thou plottest more snares against me, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Though a host of men should rise against me, yet shall not my heart be afraid. The Lord, he is my strength and my redeemer. Amen.